Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into this episode of the Aquademia Podcast. I'm Sean O'Loughlin, and this week we are going to be re-releasing one of our, no, not one of our, our most popular episode to date. This is our most popular episode where we went and spoke with the folks over at Ideal Fish uh, about starting up a recirculating aquaculture system. Like I said, it is our most popular episode, but it's also over a year old. We released it last September in 2019. And so uh, it's kind of gotten buried underneath a lot of other episodes. And so this seems to be information that people want to hear and that people are looking for. So we decided to re-release this during this holiday season. And um, I hope you guys enjoy it. If you have not heard it before. And if you have heard it before, maybe give it another listen, maybe get some new ideas and some something you missed last time. So uh, thank you so much for listening and we will talk to you next time. Hello, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Aquademia Podcast. My name is Sean O'Loughlin. I'm Justin Grant. And yet again, it's just the two of us. I promise Maddie will be back next week. She's got a lot of stuff going on this time of year. She's very, very busy, so we're giving her a little bit of space, but she will be back with us next week. This week, we have an episode that was recorded a little while ago. If you've been listening to Aquademia for any amount of time, if you caught episode 21, we sat down with Joe McElwee and talked about RAS systems, and we did that at a facility called Ideal Fish. While we were down there, Maddie wasn't able to travel with us, as we mentioned in episode 21, but we were able to go with Elise Avalon, who is the BAP marketing manager. She helped us with some of the videos we were doing down there. So she joined us for this episode as well. And while we were there, we also were able to sit down with the founder of Ideal Fish and one of the uh, fantastic employees that they have there and talk about what it was like starting up this recirculating aquaculture system and, you know, all the different things that you need to think about and what the experience was like for them, why they chose the species they did. They're actually raising Justin's favorite fish now. Bronzino. Which we've both never actually tried, but... <laughs> um, we like saying the name, and it's a very pretty fish. You'll hear us gush over how beautiful the fish is in this episode. I've heard actually. that it tastes just as well as it sounds. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a super high priced fish, which you'll hear you'll hear Eric talk about. Um, by the way, the people we spoke to were Eric Pedersen and Jess McGuire from Ideal Fish, and they share their stories. And we talk a little bit about women in aquaculture. Mm-hmm. That's you know kind of teasing an episode that we're going to have in the future. I think we're probably going to have a large episode dedicated to women in the seafood industry down the road but i hope you enjoy this episode and we'll talk to you at the end welcome to the aquademia podcast our diet is hurting the environment in myriad ways i mean we desperately need to eat more seafood this is a pioneering industry with a whole lot of people who have really good ideas and a lot of experience and are unafraid Aquademia is your go-to podcast for a fresh take on all things seafood. All right. So, <laughs> so sitting down right now with Eric Pedersen and Jess McGuire from Ideal Fish. How's it going, guys? Good. Great. Glad and, to be here, Sean. And today, unfortunately, Maddie couldn't be with us. She couldn't join us for this trip, but we did have Elise Avalon, who is the marketing manager for BAP, come down with us. Hi, Elise. Hi, Sean. So we came down to Ideal Fish to do some filming and look at some cool stuff. And this is a really cool place. This is a RAS facility, which stands for Recirculating Aquaculture System. And before we get into what that means, I want to talk about some of the people that work here because that's the best part about aquaculture is the people that are involved in it. So Jess and Eric have cool stories and I want you guys to just give a little bit of a background. Eric, why don't we start with you because you, this is your 
empire you built this so let's uh let's <laughs> yeah. talk about how empire is probably not the word that would have come most immediately <laughs> to mind but yeah uh so yeah so sean my background is uh you know i started my career in wall street you know many years ago and uh that you know like so many uh, careers i think today you know morphed into something very different and um uh, i moved more into uh water filtration technologies and for quite some time ran development stage water filtration technology companies that had you know, a promising approach to some problem in water filtration and, and needed to find, you know, a commercialization avenue to uh, to take a technology and, and bring it to practical use. So, and are you looking like, like uh, wastewater filtration for larger buildings or? Yes. For the most part, it was industrial applications where we were taking a waste stream. Uh, so, a lot of oil and gas, you know, waste streams that, you know, could be very toxic for the environment right. and uh, finding ways to clean these up using uh, new technologies and new approaches to water filtration that we're developing. And uh, in some ways, uh, you know, this started me to think about aquaculture. I was, uh, my last, you know, development stage uh, tech CEO position was in Colorado. And I was, you know, commute, commuting out there, you know, four or five days a week and coming home to um, puzzled children and a perennially annoyed wife. Yeah, that's not And fun. I thought, well, that would be good if I could find something a little bit more local to do. And so the other sort of passion I have is, is seafood and, and uh, fish and ocean preservation. And, and it didn't take long to kind of, you know, find the intersection of water filtration and that being recirculating aquaculture systems. And so I set about, you know, trying to research the industry as much as I could. This was you know, about six years ago or so and, and found that there's a remarkable opportunity and a huge need in this country and really globally for environmentally sustainable seafood production that is local. And um, you can do it in all kinds of environmentally sustainable ways. But a big problem that this country has is that our seafood is not locally produced. And so we are reliant on stuff coming from halfway around the world through numerous distribution legs and processing steps and you know, just by the time it arrives on our shores, it's tired and old. And if it's fresh seafood, it has a very limited short sh shelf life. Right. So, you know, for me, it was a huge aha moment. You know, it was like, wow, this can really solve so many of the problems we have. To say nothing of traceability. You know, when you produce a single species in a facility like this that's gill tagged, you know what you're getting. It's not, you know, some other fish. Uh, which could be lost in you know, myriad distribution legs and processing right. steps. And so- Yeah, I want to talk about that gill tagging too a little bit. Sure, later, sure. So. Um, so yeah, so I, I became very interested and discovered that, you know, while research aquaculture holds great promise, there is a lot to be done. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of, you know, incredibly valiant attempts at this. I come at this with a lot of humility because, you know, we're facing a lot of the same challenges in, in uh, making a sustainable and economic you know, business model here work. It's not easy. It's not a problem you can just throw money at and have it go away. You know, these are animals. They don't always do as they're told. And mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, there, there's a lot that uh, you have to learn. Fortunately, there are a lot of good people around that can help us. And we're, you know, we're always uh, looking to, to get guidance. And we're really optimistic. Um, I think the thing that's been so exciting for us is the reception in the market for our product. Our customers are really enthusiastic. Their customers are really enthusiastic. And I think that's what's really changed now is that the public, the consuming public has really focused on finding local and sustainable and traceable uh, sources of, of seafood. A little bit long-winded uh, No, yeah, no. Well, it's, it's I, I like how you talked about 
how you guys are optimistic because I think that's one thing that we all noticed when we came here is, I mean, you have, you're going through Murphy's law right now mm-hmm. with this stuff going, you got uh, equipment on the fritz and your, your equipment supplier is uh, shutting down. So you're going through some stuff right now, yep. but the, the positivity and optimism is still like oozing out of all, all of your staff here. So it's kind of, it's cool to see. It's nice to see that that confidence is, is there. Yep. So Jess, How's it going? Good. You okay? Yeah. <laughs> you, you nervous in front of a microphone? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> okay, okay. W- once she gets going. Yeah, exactly. So we've heard Jess's story a few times while we've been here because it's really cool. Um, for those of you who, may, I don't know if we met, we'll mention this in the intro probably, but we're in Waterbury, Connecticut right now. And Jess grew up here in Waterbury, Connecticut, and you have you have a really cool roundabout way of how you ended up back here. So you want to kind of walk us through that? Sure. So I went to school um, at Roger Williams University in Rhode Island, and I studied marine bio, and I minored in aquaculture and aquarium science. And then um, after that, I worked for the state of Connecticut as a seasonal employee for a little bit, and then I was a NEFOP observer with NOAA. And then after that... Um, you, my, what's what's that? What's NEFOP? So NEFOP is the Northeast Fisheries Observer Program. Okay, so that's where you're going out on boats and you're observing their bycatch and their methods and stuff like that, right? right. So so basically everyone hates you. Yes. Right. Pretty gotcha. much. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> um, so my family wasn't too thrilled with my career choice at that point. So um, my grandma, who also was born and raised in Waterbury, um, was listening to a local radio station um, called WATR, and the mayor was on discussing different things and industries that are coming to Waterbury. And they said that there's an aquaculture facility coming. So, you know, as soon as my grandma heard, like, fish that were, were coming to Waterbury. She called my me and my mom and told us. And I, I just kind of said to my mom, I was like, I don't think grandma heard that right. Like, I don't think that that <laughs> is actually coming here. And my mom was like, I don't know. I'm going to call the mayor's office. So my mom called the mayor's office. They gave us Eric's contact information. So I ended up reaching out to Eric. And that's how I made my way to Ideal Fish. And you were the first person the, hired, right? Yep. Yeah. And uh, I have to say, it didn't take me uh, long at all to hire Jess. And I think one of the things I appreciated about her background is exactly what you were doing as the bycatch observer for NOAA. And she was getting on, you know, a, a, a fishing boat that would go on a trawl that would last one or two weeks with a bunch of, you know, other guys. And and she would have to do the dirty work, which is to make sure that these uh, fishing uh, boats were complying, mm-hmm. you know, with regulations and monitoring. And not an easy thing to do under any circumstances. And to be a woman on a boat, you know, with a bunch of sinky fishermen um, <laughs> is, you know, not the kind of job that you would think of normally coming right out of college. And yet, you know, Jess did this, did it well. And I thought, here's, you know, here's someone who has some real grit and has some determination and uh, and some depth. Uh, and that appealed to me a lot. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Did you was, enjoy it? What was it like? Um, Actually, I did like observing. Um, it, was, it was interesting. You got to see a lot of stuff that obviously most people wouldn't see, like. A lot of people, like, unless you're going on, like, a cruise or something, you're not going to see the middle, you know, of the ocean. But, like, right. you're kind of, like, right up in it, you know, in the middle of the ocean. At the and, mercy of Mother Nature. Yeah. yeah. Um, How long did you do that for? So, I ended up doing it um, for probably about seven to eight months, I think it was. Mm-hmm. So, you do go through, like, a pretty rigorous, like, training course just to make sure you need, you need to make sure your data is going to be correct. You yeah. can't just be out there willy-nilly identifying. It's not just a boat ride. Yeah. Right. You can't be out there identifying fish that you don't 
you know, don't know what they are. So yeah. you, you do have to have a good understanding of what species are out there, what species are coming on board, what the captains look for, all different types of stuff. So there was a pretty long training class. And then after the training class, then you start going out on boats and observing. So I primarily went out of Boston and I went out of um, Rhode Island a lot. But my home port was supposed to be New London, Connecticut. But there's not a lot of fishermen that go out of New London anymore. Mm-hmm. So, Do you at least get to observe from like the captain's – are you enclosed or are you out oh, on no. the deck getting soaked by salt water? Um, no, you're out on the deck. Fish. So basically <laughs> kind of how it went was um, while they were like – I was mostly on trawl boats or ground fishing boats. So um, they didn't want you out on deck when they were like calling back or – hauling out just because the winches can snap and yep. they yep. could be pretty scary. Yep. So I would stay um, inside until they hauled back. And then once they dumped the catch, because you had to kind of quantify everything that came up, whether it was trash, you know, fishing equipment, a- anything that came up in that net, you needed to make sure you had a record of a number know. or something for it, like a wow. weight yep. in general. So they would haul back. I would take some quick measurements kind of. They would dump, dump it in what they called a checker pen. So they would dump the catch on the deck in a checker pen, and I would take some – I but prior to them dumping, I would get, like, a volume of the total checker pen. And then once they dumped the catch, I would take heights to kind of figure out the whole volume of catch. Gotcha. And then yeah. I would figure out from there what percentage I needed to sample to get an accurate representation of the catch. Um, so usually I would, I would kind of let the captains and crew kind of pick through the pile and take – what they wanted, and then anything that was left, I had to deal with. So I would, mm-hmm. I would figure out a way to get it overboard, or I would sample what I wanted, and then I would tell like, like the crew that I was all set, and then they could dump the rest or whatever mm-hmm. they needed to do with it. So any crazy stories or scary moments <laughs> out there? Uh, no, I I think so. You were lucky then. Yeah, I think the <laughs> the. I mean, I went through a couple storms, which was, you know, to be expected. Um, but one of the storms, I lost some of my gear overboard because I didn't secure it as good as I should have. So that was kind of crummy because it was like at the beginning of the trip and you lost yeah. like stuff that you're going to need for the week. So, but yeah, so it's it's definitely an experience, but. Crazy. So big difference now. Yes. So Very big difference. let's talk about the facility. Ideal Fish is a indoor recirculating aquaculture facility. Our listeners may not understand what that means. One of you guys sure. want to give a quick so, rundown? Uh, what it means is that we're growing fish in a closed containment system. Uh, like a where, fish tank. Yeah, very large like uh, you know, pools or tanks. You can call them what you will. But the fish are uh, you know, in their own environment. And really, you know, as uh, our facility manager, Matt Dawson, likes to point out, we're not so much in the business of growing fish as we are creating, you know, a synthetic, you know, living environment for the fish using, you know, technology and a system that does not expose the fish to the out of doors. And this is one of the, I think, uh, promises that research aquaculture delivers, and that is that you can raise fish anywhere. You can raise them in the desert where you have limited supplies of water. You can raise them in the middle of a, you know, metal fabrication city centrally located in Connecticut, uh, which... Has that happened? Is that... that So, well, (laughs) uh, as a matter of fact, it has. (laughs) And and so this is, I think, what we're seeing is, uh, you know, a lot of enthusiasm by the consuming market 
to the idea that you can get a fish that's actually not an indigenous species at all. It's one that's wild or grown in the Mediterranean, Mm -hmm. and you can produce it uh, locally and very freshly right here in the middle of Waterbury. And if you, you know, come and tour our facility, as, as all of you have, you will note that this is not farming. From the standpoint of you know having uh, access to meteorological conditions that can affect the performance, and we you know have the ability to stabilize and standardize the water conditions and remove stress from the fish, which is really our goal. And, yeah, you know, the amount of control that you have over the water is comparable to that of basically a biological research laboratory. That's correct. Really, it, it, this is really much more of a highly engineered biotech process. Than it is farming. Uh, farming, you, you have a high degree of reliance on things you cannot control, like meteorological phenomenon, and uh, and not that we, you know, have complete control <laughs> over things. I mean, we are, you know, navigating right now through a difficult process where, you know, we're uh, having to play back, you know, catch up ball on uh, some of our systems, and the fish don't always, you know, do as they're told either, but. At least one thing you can eliminate is stresses that come into play on living organisms, whether they're plants or produce or animals uh, that come from external sources, the environment, for example. So pathogens, uh, weather phenomenon, we can eliminate those uh, from part of the as you know part of the production risks. So yeah, it's it's a it's a wonderful it's a wonderful approach um, that. I think has the promise to provide a much more fresh, sustainable, and traceable manner of seafood production here. But it does take some time to become established, and we're working yeah. through, uh, navigating through that process. And uh, you know, we're really excited about uh, not only you know achieving what this facility can achieve, you know, within the next uh, two or three quarters, but also you know increasing our production with more facilities, more species. Doing this around the Waterbury area where we can uh, take advantage of the city's many resources, not the least of which is very robust, you know, uh, industrial infrastructure, high quality water, high quality power, high quality natural gas delivered to all these, you know, uh, semi-dormant manufacturing facilities that can house operations like ours. So we're, uh, and it's uh, right smack in the middle of the biggest, you know, seafood market in North America between Boston and Washington, D.C., the seafood Salespeople refer to it as the golden triangle, and we're right in the middle of it. And so we don't really have to go uh, too too much, you know, beyond our back door to to find customers who want to buy our product. Yeah, and it seems like the community here has really kind of embraced you, um, which is not always the case in America when you're starting up a new aquaculture facility. I mean, that's kind of unique. So how is how is that how have how has your relationship with the local community helped you guys? Well, I think it's been critical. Yeah. Uh, I mean, from the very beginning. Uh, and supplying you with your first employee, first of all. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> which is no small feat. I mean, the, the, the staff here are what make the facility run. So I can't overestimate the value of having the right people. Having someone like Jess with, you know, a marine and aquaculture, marine biology, aquaculture background academically from a great school like Roger Williams uh, and with her experience, uh, you know, um, in, uh, in various you know, jobs leading up to that was a real find. And Jess literally lives five, ten minutes away from the facility. I mean, you can almost walk here. I mean, it's that close. Very close. Um, But the mayor's office has been tremendously supportive. Uh, You know, when I found a a good building in Waterbury, I went to the mayor's office um, and explained what I wanted to do. And mayor took 10 seconds to say, this is great. This is great for the city. And the next meeting I had was with all of his functional staff, all of the department agency heads, Water, wastewater treatment, pollution control, fire, electrics, you know, building, uh, permitting, 
everybody sat in a conference room and the mayor directed them to let's let's assist Eric in you know working through this as quickly as and efficiently as we can and help him get started. And that mentality has persisted, uh, you know, through all of our stages of um, growth and development here. So we're real pro Waterbury, and just as a good indication of the quality of the, you know, the the labor force that we ex- intend to access as we grow. Yeah. Nice. What's it like working here? Do you like it? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I like it. It's yeah. What's the some of the biggest challenges, if there are any? I mean, there's definitely <laughs> challenges. I think when stuff starts to go wrong, you definitely get a little bogged down by it, and you're like, oh, when is this, you know, going to turn around? But I think. Um, it's important to like visualize the final goal and like get to where you want to go. Like obviously there's going to be bumps in the road as you get to the end. So right now we're going through our growing pains, which is definitely difficult, but I think it's important to keep in mind that, you know, the overall thing is, you know, it's going to be pretty great when we can achieve what we want to achieve with this facility. Yeah. I'm curious about the species that kind of caught my attention because I wasn't overly familiar, well, not familiar at all, with Bronzino. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah. Could you tell me yeah, a little bit about why you chose this species and a little bit about the species? Yeah. Sure. Well, um, you know, recirculating systems, uh, you basically raise fish in an artificial life support uh, system. So there is an attendant cost with uh, creating a life support system in which you raise fish. And so you, you need to pick a species that, first of all, can grow well in a artificial life support system. So you can think of a lot of species like tuna and pilot whale and, and swordfish that aren't going to do too well in a, in a recirculating system. So that's the first, you know, kind of cutoff. You, you have to go, you have to find fish. Uh, and bronzino is among many. Um, you know, there's tilapia, there's barramundi, there's uh, trout, salmon. Lots of species that will actually do very well in a research system. Uh, but then you have to narrow down the field to ones that uh, command enough of a price in the uh, retail marketplace, in the, in the consumer's market, marketplace, to help you afford the costs of running a system like this. And that's more challenging to do uh, with freshwater species, particularly some of the lower value freshwater species like tilapia, although there are numerous uh, recirculating facilities in the country that grow tilapia. In fact, probably more research facilities grow tilapia than any other species here. But they're generally located in, you know, very inexpensive areas of the country where power is, is cheap and labor is cheap and land is cheap. And you know, we're we're not in a cheap area. So it was important to find a species that high value um, species that had a high high price tag associated with it. Yeah, yeah. and bronzina fits that bill. It's also a fantastic fish. How much does it go for roughly? Per pound, what are you looking so at? So we we see it uh, retailing uh, for you know at the at the fish markets and the grocery stores anywhere between uh, nine dollars a pound uh, to thirteen or fourteen dollars a pound, even higher in some places. Yeah, so nice. <laughs> and that's by the way for a whole fish, head on guts, the whole bit, right? right. That's that's not a fillet. Um, Let's go ahead. No, go and ahead. Uh, you know, I, I, I you can find it in the uh, restaurants. Mm-hmm. Um, a bronzino entree can go from anywhere between mm-hmm. twenty nine, thirty dollars a plate, all the way up to. Um, I, in fact, I, I had a celebratory dinner at a very fancy restaurant, and there was a ninety five dollar uh, bronzino wow. for two people, so it was close to fifty bucks a head wow. for bronzino. So very very pricey. Uh, pricey fish, but you know, again, it's all about where you buy it and and how you enjoy it. <laughs> At least I've been waiting. Yeah, no, no, it's okay. Uh, one thing that we've talked about is like one of the barriers to purchase for seafood yeah, is to get closer to the yeah. is the fact that people don't 
know how to prepare it. And, you know, one nice thing that you had talked about about Branzino is that it's super easy to prepare. Can you just speak to that a little bit? Yeah. Uh, and I'm no chef by any stretch <laughs> of the imagination, right? Um, but uh, we, you know, the, the fish is very versatile, which is, I think, partly why the culinary profession values this fish. And you're seeing it more and more now on restaurant menus, uh, particularly in this area. Not, not so much in the deep south and the Midwest, uh, but certainly on coastal areas in the country, you know, the West Coast, Northeast, and even in the middle Atlantic states, you're seeing it more commonly on restaurant menus. And it's because the fish can be served either as a whole fish, you know, where it's been uh, put in an oven and uh, potentially had the gut cavity, you know, filled with some type of a, you know, delicious aromatic, often citrus-based uh, stuffing, or it will be filleted and uh, and and sautéed in, in, in a pan. Um, and the fish has a truly delicious skin, which when you, you know, brown it the right amount, and I see Jess nodding here. Jess just got all excited. Yeah, yeah, no, listen, you know, little butters, uh, olive oil, salt, pepper, and you flip that bad boy, you know, on its skin side uh, for, you know, two or three minutes until you get that golden brown texture, flip it over 30 seconds, and you're done. And it's, you know, it's really, it's very easy to make. You know, this is the problem with doing this, is we go and we talk to these people about these products, and we cut, come out of these interviews so hungry <laughs> because the way that they describe their their product and how you cook it and eat it is just it, it always sounds so delicious and I I'd love to try it someday. Uh, yeah, it's a downside with the podcast is it's all audio and not no video attached. But if I could describe the fish, the Bronzino fish is a gorgeous looking. It fish. is a beautiful. It's fish. a beautiful looking fish. Yeah, if you were to if you were to ask a kid to draw a picture of a fish. They would probably draw something like this. It's a very stereotypical stereotypical yeah. fish. I mean, yeah. it's a, a silver torpedo shaped fish, but it is it's got this gorgeous shine to it and some coloration under the yeah. under the gills and under the uh, pectoral fins. That just it's it's beautiful to look at. So it looks great in the case. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's very presentable, and I'm sure all of that also adds to the price point. It does. In addition and, to and the, I think, the you know, one flesh of the, quality. One of the things you can, you can tell, too, when you see our fish in the ice case, um, it will be shiny and it will appear you know, to be very, uh, very moist. Uh, and the fish that's coming in from abroad from the sea cage farms in the Mediterranean typically will dr look dried up. Mm -hmm. And it's just a function of the age of the fish. You know, the, uh, the thing that you will never mistake by a fresh fish is the way it looks and feels and smells. Um, and it's just incomparable or to anything smell. that's you know, upwards of a right. week old. It's just a very, very different culinary and mm -hmm. olfactory experience. Yeah, for sure. So one thing that you mentioned earlier was the the um, gill tags. And that's, uh, again, they, the uh, listeners and consumers might not, that might not be a regular part of their vocabulary, mm -hmm. gill tags. Um, and really, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a tag that's on the fish's gill. But it's there, you guys do something really cool that I haven't seen before with that. Can you explain, Jess? Do you want to explain? Yeah, what that sure. Is? So um, we so we keep really good records while our fish go through the facility. Um, so you're able to track a fish, you know, as soon as it enters this facility, all the way until time of harvest. So we're able to use that information and we supply it to a QR code that's located on the back of our guild tag. So when you actually purchase your fish at the supermarket or pr primarily at the supermarket, you would get the guild tag. And then you're able to use your phone and look up the QR code and that'll give you all sorts of information about how long that fish has ha been at our facility, what hatchery it came from. So it gives you a lot of information, which I think is 
starting to be more and more important to customers when they're consuming seafood nowadays. Um, so it's definitely a pretty cool technology that we're using. Yeah, that was, that was, that was really cool. I think we were talking a little bit last night about this, um, the traceability stuff and how the word organic is kind of starting to leave the minds of customers, right? We were mentioning this and they're looking for more local, but what they really, what consumers really actually are looking for is traceable. They want to know where, where the fish comes from. It doesn't necessarily need to be grown in their backyard, but they want to know where it comes from. So this is just a really cool tool for consumers. It's pretty neat. So Yeah, I think it addresses, you know, again, what consumers want, which is they want to be sure of what they're buying. And um, there have been studies that show that in the third of the third of the time, the species of fish that the consumer believes they are buying is not actually what they're getting. Yeah. And this removes all doubt. And it's also uh, allows you to know exactly how, how old the fish is. So we're very excited about it. We're experimenting with different modes of yep. communicating that information. Sometimes the gill tags aren't accessible by the consumer because they're on fish beyond the ice case. So we're looking at maybe placards that the uh, fish can stick in front that can be accessed mm-hmm. you know, through the glass. We're looking at that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have this vision that even in restaurants, the diner who selects the Bronzino app, uh, uh, entree could have the gill tag handed to them by the by their server as evidence of you know they're getting a special premium product, and they can flip it over, scan it in their phone, and have a whole table conversation around you know where the fish came from and what its attributes are and why this is going to be a unique dining experience provided by this particular restaurant. So there's a lot of ways I think this can go. Um, and, and like everything else we're doing, as just mentioned, you know, this is experimental for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but we're excited by it and we think there's, you know, huge, uh, huge uh, opportunity ahead. If we have any local listeners that want to purchase your product, where could they find it? So, um, so we are selling very locally uh, into a fantastic distributor called Gulf Shrimp. They are just down the road from us, I think in Southington, right? Yep, just, they're in yeah, they're in Southington. And uh, the, uh, first of all, they're a phenomenal uh, fish distribution business. They have a retail store. Um, I believe you can go and ask them for our fish. I'm not sure if they're actually on the ice there or not. I know that uh, the, pro- the production that they pick up from us goes to uh, their restaurant customers. At least do we go past there on our way home? But you could go by and look. <laughs> yep, for sure. Yeah. And uh, you stop and get some. And then we, you know, we're in retailers here in Connecticut. They're not in the Waterbury area just yet, mm-hmm. uh, but they are in Westport, Greenwich, and Stamford. Mm-hmm. So we're at uh, Balducci's Food Lovers Market, which is a you know, fantastic shopping experience to go into really high high end, uh, you know, market themed you know grocery store. And then uh, also King's Food Markets, which is extremely high end you know grocery store uh, chain without uh, attendant pricing. Uh, at that level, uh, but so you get a fantastic value, and then also Fairway, which is uh, Fairway Markets is you know they're uh, they're in uh, one location in Stamford, Connecticut, but uh, throughout the New York metropolitan area and in uh, northern New Jersey. So these are you know fantastic places, great partners for us to be uh, located. And as our production increases, you know we we plan to be uh, more and more you know in central Connecticut and reaching up to Boston. Right. Do you know of any other facilities in the? in North America that are raising this species? No, we're the only ones. You're the only ones. In fact, ones. as far as I know, I we're so. the only... I think we're the only ones in the country. I think so. We're the I only know. ones raising ras and the uh, raising seed, yeah, uh, bronzino in the country. Mm-hmm. 
and one of the only ones uh, on a commercial scale, I think, doing it globally in a research system. Right. Wow. Right. So how is it normally? Is it usually done with net pens or sea cages? Yeah. So normally the species, they're spawned like in a hatchery. So you'll get your fingerlings from a hatchery and then generally they'll go out into sea cages and that's generally where they're harvested from. So not many facilities use wrasse with this particular species. Yeah. And you get your fingerlings from, where did you say? We have a, a fantastic hatchery in southern France called Les Poissons du Soleil it's in uh, Montpellier area. And they uh, supply a lot of the juvenile fish for the large sea cage operations in the Mediterranean. Um, and they have found, you know, a very effective way, consistently effective way of packaging the fish and shipping them overnight to us uh, by, you know, by air freight. And uh, we bring the fish in and just, you know, heads up a team that will uh, acclimate them and get them into one of our nursery quarantine systems for observation. Mm -hmm. And And they'll sit in quarantine for? So so quarantine's kind of like, you could think of it as like a nursery slash quarantine area. Um, So there are, you do want your fish to be in quarantine, obviously, when they're coming new to the facility. Um, But also we use that as a nursery area so that they'll stay in that system until they're large enough to be moved out into our grow out area. And how long does that usually take? About four months. Four months? Yep. So what's the full life cycle from when you get the fish in to when you can harvest it? Is that six months? Um, right now, it's probably anywhere between 14 to 16 months. Okay. Um, just because we had some temperature fluctuations in the winter, which we are looking on to, to remedy. So that would sh- definitely shorten the time period that it would take from fingerling to harvest. Right. The other thing that's cool with the RAS system, I, I talked about the control. The uh, You have more control of the environment than you would in any other type of farming system basically and that includes light and the photo period and you said they're on a really strict photo period mm-hmm. that kind of follows the sun up and sundown of where the fish is indigenous to correct mm-hmm. yeah i mean it's, they're, they're on a circadian rhythm you know they sleep kind of like we do yeah. right and um so you know when the staff has closed up for the evening uh, the lights are turned down and these fish unlike uh, many others sa- salmon are swimming around all the time yeah uh, these fish bed down. They head down to the bottom of the tank and kind of nest themselves amongst each other, and then they kind of stay quiet, right? Adorable. Yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah. yeah we, uh, we try not to name them. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, never name a never fish. Name yeah. a fish. That's the thing, yeah. Not one you're going to eat anyway. No. So, But, yeah, so that's a very normal part of the process. And we believe this is, you know, evolutionally, evolutionarily how the fish, you know, evolved to have that kind of um, – a rhythm. Mm-hmm. So we're not going to change it. If that's what the fish naturally does, we're not going to try to feed it throughout the night. Yeah. 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 Wild. All right. So I want to shift focus a little bit and I want to talk about one thing we try to highlight in a lot of our videos and, and some of the articles and blog posts, things that we push out is we, we try to highlight women in aquaculture because we don't think that they really get their fair share of recognition. And there's a lot of women that work in aquaculture. What it, can you share kind of your perception of what it's like being a woman working in the aquaculture industry or the seafood industry as a whole? Um, I guess for me, like I just, and at least you too. I mean, or even on that fishing boat that you were working on, that must have been pretty interesting. (laughs) Um, I never really thought like I couldn't do something or something because a woman. I don't know if that's just kind of how I was raised that you're just what you do, what you want to do, and you're gonna do it. Um, so like my parents were very encouraging to me. Like when I told them I wanted to be a marine biologist, when I told them I was going out to sea. I mean, my dad was a little nervous but he was more concerned about weather than me being able to handle myself right, just safety in general, yeah he it? was more concerned than me being able to handle myself on a boat full of fishermen 
I mean, it definitely has its tough points where, you know, I mean, I guess I would say I'm more like emotional than some of our staff members where like if we lose fish or something negative happens, I'm always the first one to be like upset about mm -hmm. it. But um, but I don't I don't know. I just for me, this is what I wanted to do and nothing was going to kind of stop me from doing it, whether yeah. that meant people were men in particular were jerks or something like that didn't deter me from being in this industry. I just, this is what I wanted. So that's what yeah. I did. What's your take, Elise? I'm curious what you're, for working in the seafood industry. You um, like, well, towards you a what bit. we do, I think, what we do at GAA, I think is unique. You know, we work for a nonprofit organization that touches all parts of the aquaculture industry. Yeah. What so, do you think the ratio is at, at GAA with women to men? It's, it's like, it's half? fairly close it's like to 50, 50 50 i would think but yeah. we also have you know about 50 employees so we're, we're still relatively small but right. we've grown a lot but you know it's interesting going to trade shows and stuff in the industry because a lot of the time it is mostly men older men, older men yeah. <laughs> um, but i think nowadays we're seeing a lot more women in these types of positions which is encouraging so yeah 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 have you noticed any difference in treatment that you felt or no but see, think, that's awesome. Yeah. And the people that we speak to are very, they seem to just, they don't care. They're good workers. They get, they know their stuff, then it doesn't matter. Exactly. So we like, we want to make sure that we, we're highlighting. Yeah, highlighting I appreciate that. that. I'd like to mention that Oops. we do work with a local high school um, and we do have an internship program with them. And all of our interns so far have been young women who are looking to go into um, not necessarily aquaculture, but definitely like an agricultural type of position, which again is generally dominated by men. So I think yeah. it's pretty awesome that we have these young women coming to work with us every day. Sure. And our full-time uh, technician staff is yes. gender balanced. That right? is, that's true. Yep. yep. There's two female technicians and two. Two male. Yep. Full-time male yep. technicians. Yep. Yeah. Awesome. I love that. And I think we'll do a, I think we'll do a full episode about um I don't want to say gender equality, but the the differences in that women in aquaculture and women in seafood as a whole. I think that could be pretty pretty powerful episode and we'll get some maybe we'll get you back on remotely or something to yeah. talk about that. It'd be pretty pretty cool discussion. Yeah, I think aquaculture holds a tremendous opportunity for women. Yeah. It's a very much a scientific, mm -hmm. technical, you know, STEM uh, based uh, career. Uh, so intellectually, I think it can uh, provide the kind of challenge that, you know, all people are looking for. It also has, uh, you know, a lot of flexibility in terms of how you want to approach your career. Um, if you, you know, want to be a traveling warrior and, you know, fly all over the world uh, selling your product or being a thought leader uh, and, you know, liaising with other aquaculture or seafood entities, um, you certainly have that ability. If you, um, you know, like me, wanted to find ways to work um, less on an airplane and more locally where you're home on a more reliable basis, and this was actually a, a, a big part of why I was attracted to this business because it was a local business, then, you know, you have that as well. And, uh, you know, you can pick and choose kind of as you want to direct your career. And I suspect, Jess, your career will change yeah. in various ways over time mm -hmm. and uh, suit your needs, right? Yep. But you have, you have both, both of those uh, opportunities ahead of you. And I think it's important to mention that our facility definitely is pro-women. Like we have created an environment where women feel safe. You can speak up. You can say whatever you want. I think that's important because I don't – I haven't worked at many fish farms, but I don't know that that's the same across all fields that women would feel comfortable in all environments. So it's definitely a big thing that is here that we, that we created that environment 
How does that sure. feeling compare to when you were working on these fishing boats? Is it like, was it two completely different worlds? I think. Or did you feel pretty welcome on the boats as well? To be honest, I almost felt well more welcome as a, a girl going on the boat. Like they were more apt to help you load your equipment up on the boat. You know, I particularly, like I had a few tough captains that were definitely difficult, but I never really had anyone be rude or anything, you know. Because you're a woman. Because I was a woman. Right. That never, I've never experienced that. I do know other women in the observing field did have issues with that. But in general, everyone was really respectful of my, of me being a woman. They just didn't like that you were. The they just didn't like that I was an observer. It doesn't then. matter who no, you it were. It didn't matter who you were. They were just. <laughs> They're gonna hate you anyway. Yeah, they right? didn't want you on the boats. <laughs> awesome. Well, you know, we've been talking for a little while, so we don't. I don't want to keep you out of the fish room for too long. And I know you guys got a lot of stuff to do. Um, we really appreciate you coming on. Is there anything that you would like to mention before we finish up? Well, the one comment I would make is I listen. I think podcasts like this are really crucial uh, for the aquaculture industry. Uh, uh, there's, there's a big gap in information that the consuming public um, has. And there's a lot of misinformation, particularly about seafood and aquaculture. It is a very complex subject. There is a lot of confusing uh, points of views. Mm -hmm. you know, is wild fish good? Is it not good? Or is aquaculture and farm fish good? Or is that not good? How do you choose? How do you know? Um, is it safe? Is it not safe? And it's uh, as a consumer of seafood, you, you really don't have the kind of understanding uh, that you need to make informed decisions. And I think, you know, shows like this one uh, really can help close the gap on that. So we applaud all that you were doing at, you know, Global Aquaculture Alliance to help, you know, close that gap. Well, thank you for that. That's that's our goal. We want people to eat more seafood and feel safe and comfortable doing it. So our goal too. Yep. yep. So we really appreciate you guys coming on. Again, Eric Pedersen and Jess McGuire from Ideal Fish. If our listeners want to contact you, what's the best way to do that? Go right to our website. And there is a uh, tab, I think, mm -hmm. in our uh, website that gives lists uh, all of us and provides uh, contact email addresses. So. We'll provide a link to your website on yep. the show notes. For it's this an easy one, www.idealfish.com. Excellent. <laughs> and you can see how beautiful the fish is on that yeah. website. Yes. And we'll also be, this has been Justin's thing, we've been we've been filming here. So, I mean, at least do you want to talk about what we're actually doing here for filming? Yeah. So, part of our initiatives uh, with the Best Aquaculture Practices Program is to highlight facilities that have become certified and to educate, you know, our audiences about what aquaculture looks like and the faces behind aquaculture. So what we're doing with Ideal Fish is uh, filming a video, and that will be all over our social pages and on our website. And uh, so look for that and a blog post as well. So, yeah. Sweet. So thank you guys so much and uh, have a great day. Thank you, guys. Folks, that was our conversation with Eric and Jess from Ideal Fish. I know it was a super cool conversation. We had a great time while we were down there, and we got a lot done. I mean, we were there for two days. Yeah, we got a lot of good video footage and first, recorded two podcast episodes. And, it was a busy two days. And the first flight of our drone, right? Yeah, the, uh, <laughs> the, maiden, like the flight the, of the, the Phoenix. Ma the maiden voyage of 
of our drone, which we have named the Cormorant. So yes. the ma- maiden voyage of the Cormorant was down in uh, Waterford, Connecticut. <laughs> Waterbury, Connecticut. So I hope you guys enjoyed this. Uh, stay on the lookout for an episode next week with all three of us. And remember, if you want to contact us, make sure to check out podcast at aquaculturealliance.org. Follow us on social. Twitter is at AquademiaPod. And if you'd like to call and leave a voicemail, again, this phone this phone number does go directly to voicemail. You will not talk to the famous Sean O'Loughlin or Justin Grant or Maddie Cassidy, but we'll be sure to listen. So dial in at 1-603-384-3560. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.